it's been again through my own spiritual experiences that I've been able to create stories to help people now. You know, when you're approaching water, you make that petition to water and you make that tobacco offering because water is older than we are. That's our elder. That was activist and educator Renee Santisi. Renee joins me on this episode of Not Invisible Native Peoples on the Front Lines to discuss water protection, spirituality, and her own journey towards healing. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Leandra Neffen. Hi, everybody. My name is Leandra Neffin, and I welcome you to another interview with Red House Series. Today, on our virtual couch, we are going to be interviewing Renee Santasi from the Omaha Tribe of Nebraska and Iowa. So I'm going to start off first with, could you give us a br- uh, uh, an introduction into who you are and, and what you do and all the amazing work that you've been doing on the front lines? Oh, thank you. Yes. Usually I start off by introducing myself in Omaha and, you know, I do it the way my mom taught me. And I always say, all my relations. Let me introduce myself. Umaha ijaje wiwitate. Shonge hube wau. Wahe ijaje wiwitate rene sansasi. Umaha wa ubli. I said my umaha name is Sacred Horsewoman. My English name is Rene Sansasi, or French name, I always say. And uh, I'm an umaha woman. And I usually keep my introductions short and sweet. Otherwise, could go on and on, adding my parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and so on and so forth. I'm a member of the Omaha tribe of Nebraska. I live here in Lincoln, Nebraska, about 100 miles south of the Omaha Indian Reservation. And I've lived here for about going on eight years now. But lived uh, I was born here in Lincoln and spent well over half my life here in Lincoln living. And then I would say the other half, has been predominantly on the Omaha Indian Reservation, but also in other areas of Turtle Island. So you and I, Renee, we, we sort of know each other because, you know, we grew up in the same homelands. We're both Omaha. And I think you probably, <laughs> you probably know my parents. And so, and I've been, you know, kind of watching, you know, your journey and the things that you're doing on, you know, social media. And, and I find you such an inspiration in terms of the work that you're doing because you're really kind of putting in those frameworks and fighting for that organizational structure for our future, you know, descendants, which is very common amongst Native people. And I had the pleasure of kind of working with you on, on a project on Susan Lafleche Picot. But I wondered if you could kind of go into some of the more recent things, because I noticed, you know, on Facebook, you had the opportunity, you went to, to visit kind of George Floyd's memorial. I've seen you do um, a couple of walks as well in terms of, uh, was it in Minnesota, I think it was? Yes, yeah. Yeah. I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. So a lot of times when I'm going to the marches and so forth, either I do so at the invitation of either 
that organization or elders or someone someone will invite me and say, please come up here. When when I get that kind of request, especially from an elder, then I'm like, okay, you know, I will be there, you know. And I don't I have no no idea at the time when I say that how I'm going to get there or what you know what it's gonna take or anything like that. I just say, okay, I'm gonna be there. Then I let everything else fall into place from that point on. In uh, regards to the march I went to in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, they called it the Treaty Walk, and it was a march to support the work of Honor the Earth and the water protectors who have been defending their land, the Mother Earth and so forth, especially the Mississippi River. And they've been doing this work for years. And so to me, I'm like, they're they're doing this work 24-7. I'm only doing a portion, you know, of what I can do because my work is here, right, in Nebraska. However, when I do feel, you know, when I do receive those calls to action, I do my best to respond. So in this case, an elder did ask me to come up. Her name was Mary Lyons. She goes by great-grandmother Mary Lyons. And she's uh, someone I highly respect as as an elder, but also as a Madewan. And, you know, her capacity has just I mean, tremendous. So I'm, I'm deeply inspired by her. And so by receiving that uh, request from her, I said, okay, I'm on my honor. So, okay, I will be there. To go and support to me is like, well, a number of things happen. I always feel that I'm going to show that I am in support of their work and their efforts. And like I said, I might not be there 24-7 in, you know, as an example for a number of them who are doing this, you know, Winona Ledoux and Honor the Earth and all the other organizations that are in support of Honor the Earth. But I always feel that it's important to let them know that they do have that support from outside sources, I guess, from out of state. I don't want to be one who's going to hang back if I do receive those kinds of invitations and requests. I feel like if I put that call out to somebody and I said, please come and people do come, I do feel then that in turn also means that I have to show the same kind of support. So I don't consider myself, I guess, as a water protector. I I never thought about it that way before. Like it has become, I guess, generalized or in general. I always felt like there was a lot of training that went into the spiritual process of being a protector of water. And that that process, you know, from what I've witnessed and experienced, it takes a lifetime. And these women who are dedicated to it, to being the spiritual ceremonial part of being a water protector, this is their life, their uh, commitment. And so that's how I look at it. I'm like, okay, you know, I I don't take those words lightly of being a water protector. To me, it's like, it's not just a political slogan. It's like, this is something that's so serious that the women, like I said, that I know who are ceremonial keepers of the water ceremonies and so forth, they're like, uh, this is their lifetime role. So when I say that, you know, I don't say it lightly. I don't call myself that because I feel like it's something that I'm still, you know, moving into or still learning, still becoming. So I don't just say I'm a water protector. I feel like this is something I'm still learning how this whole process works. I don't consider myself an expert or anything in that role. However, when these women that I'm talking about, when they do say, come and support us, I will be there. 
Yeah, I'm actually really glad that you kind of brought that up because I, that's one of the things that I've sort of noticed is that this term water protector is really kind of used, as you said, very generally for people. And when I see kind of on social media, a lot of people even calling themselves water protector. And because I understand that there's this whole kind of process to even getting to that point and, and the majority, exactly as you said, you know, don't even feel comfortable to say that until they've kind of actually made those sacrifices and gone through that process, as you said, like a lifelong process and the spiritual kind of connotations behind that. So I'm really glad that you kind of brought that up because it is something that you do see quite a lot on social media where there's this generalized term. I know previously, I guess maybe in the past, there has been some secrecy around, you know, Medewin, but I think nowadays people are, are more open to talking about that. And I'm wondering, do you feel comfortable in kind of explaining what that means to, to other people? Well, I don't, I'm not going to talk about the ceremonies. What I will speak about is in regards to like, you know, I've, I've done a lot of research on, you know, why it became so secret, because before it wasn't secret. Before colonization, it wasn't secret. This was our ways of life. So it was, it became secret out of necessity because our ways were outlawed, right? So once that happened, then they started to imprison our people for practicing our spiritual ceremonies. And it wasn't just the Medewin, it was like all the ceremonies across Turtle Island and so forth. It was like everything had to be taken underground and people had to do everything in secret in order to preserve a way of life, but also so that they wouldn't be imprisoned or put to death. So I understand why it became so secret because you know, that was to protect the people, especially the medicine people. And when the medicine people were thriving before, like I said, before colonization, before everything was outlawed, then, you know, it was a way of life. It was one of the one of the ways that we practice. I think for a lot of the tribes that believe this way, I've looked at all the other Degiha tribes as an example, you know, with the Ponca, because the Ponca were also Madewan, the Osage were also Madewan, the Kanza or the Ka were also Madewan, and the Kwapas were Madewan. So with all of us being part of that at one time, you know, when we all split apart, then that's when things changed, of course, after, and especially after colonization, everything began to change and shift, as things do, right? So one of the evidence that I came upon was when I was visiting with the Quapas, and I made relations down there. I was visiting some of their, I want to say their longhouses, that's the only way I could describe them. Because it was like they were still maintaining a way of how the structures looked. Even though they were buildings, they still were long and just as to how our Dialipus looked. Our Dialipus were the long tied houses, I thought, because that was in refer reference to the branches being tied together. And then, of course, they said Dialipus Nede. So then it was like long. And you can see pictures of that now on the internet. You know, you look it up and you can find the Madewan Lodge houses or teaching lodges, however you want to call them. That, I saw the evidence there with the Quapas because their buildings are long and they still resemble that shape. And how they conduct their feasts and so forth are still like the Madewan. And I was like, oh, wow, that's so interesting, you know, that this is how this is working and it was still in their Native American church as well. And it does, it's still somewhat in ours too, as well, the Native American church. I know that they 
with the Omaha tribe did the best that they could to maintain and preserve those ceremonies within something like the Native American church in order to make it palatable to the missionaries and government officials who are watching all the time. But at some point, it changed to them actually becoming very Christianized about it. I think before it was more like lip service, like, okay, we'll, we'll say that we're going to talk about Jesus. But at some point in there, they actually did begin to believe in the Christian part of it. So there are still, I guess you'd say, remnants of what we once practiced that's embedded in the Native American church services, whether that's the Omaha tribe or, you know, the Quapaws or the other Degihans. And without me coming across as being heretical or whatever, because I know that if I say that sometimes to different members of Native American church, they would be like, that would not be something that, they, you know, they would have to have that history or background to understand. And I know some do, but not everyone does. So I don't go there too much, but I do see, like I said, the evidence of what the remnants of what we once had that are embedded in NAC practices. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm really, you know, thankful that you kind of explained that. And it really just kind of speaks to that, you know, when we talk about Medewin, the way of the heart, opening your heart and having that receptivity to be open and using your, your intuitive capabilities, the way of the heart, rather than sometimes those cognitive abilities that can sometimes block that process in some respect. But I know even in my own to mihas and my my aunties and my relatives they will often tell me when that portion is meant for you you will have it and it does it, it takes it, sometimes it takes months or years and you know the older i get i think the more patient i've become in in understanding that but when you're young you want instant gratification and you know i want to know now and and i think sometimes when people are reconnecting you can kind of see that almost childlike curiosity but wanting to know everything at once and not recognizing that actually this is a walk that's a lifelong journey that's what i always let people know you know because sometimes when they have questions or they want to they want to know something it's right. like i might only know part of it my portion is what i have if you want more you might have to go to so and so they might have more or they might tell you something and then send you on your way. And you might, it's like, because of, again, like the disruption that we went through in our traditional practices, where, you know, each of us are carrying portions of the whole picture, the whole puzzle, whole source of knowledge, whatever. So to me, it's like, it is beneficial if you're able to sit down with people and listen to them. That was the purpose of going to your elders and listening. But always it's that approach. And that's what I always teach people is it's how you approach because I've had to get my hand slapped more than once about you don't do that. And I was like, okay, I didn't know that, but okay, I do now. So it's like learning the process of approaching an elder or whatever that is. I've always been told that you want to gain information from somebody and you know that they have that information. Then you go and see them, approach them respectfully, take them a gift, take them tobacco, take them food, take whatever you got and approach them in that way and say, you know, this is what I'm searching for. Can you help me? Everybody has a different way of how they want to be approached. Mine, I keep pretty simple. I just say, you know, hey, you know, you're asking, bring that tobacco and we can sit down and then we can start the conversation. And then it's an ongoing conversation until you have the information you need to continue on. But a lot of times people forget that part. They don't want to, I don't know what it is. Sometimes they get, I guess, maybe forgetful or they have a different idea. And they're like, oh, I don't think I should have to do that. I run into that a few times and I'm like, oh, wow. 
well, I guess then you're not going to gain the, the help that you need. You need to approach everybody that way. But I let people know, too, that if they do that for me, I always let them know I have to do the same thing. If I'm going to see a medicine person, then by all means, I'm going to go and approach them in the right way and ask them in, in, the right, in, in a good way so that they can then respond and help me or whatever. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> you can't tell sometimes if they're going to be able to help you or not. And that's okay, too. But uh, it's a process of learning. And I always teach people that it doesn't just apply to human beings. And I might take tobacco to my own daughters if I need their help assisting me in something, you know, in a ceremony or so forth. I will give them tobacco and ask them, would you be able to help me at this time? And sometimes they can and sometimes they can't. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's okay. I'm not trying to force you to. I'm just asking if you're able to. Because sometimes they have do have other things going on at that time and they're not able to make that commitment. And it's an understanding. So when I say that when you're approaching somebody and you're approaching an elder, well, you're also looking at when you're approaching water, you make that petition to water and you make that tobacco offering. Because water is older than we are. That's mm. our elder. Yeah, yeah. And it's 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 really nice that you introduced that as well, that kind of reciprocal relationship to water and to nature. I mean, in and to each other, because it's that collectivist way of thinking. And you know, when you talk about even that healing and calling on the ancestors, you know, I think and Scott Mamaday kind of talked about that blood memory that we carry. And so I think that's just really beautiful in, in the way that you kind of expressing that. And I think our audience is going to be really keen to learn more from you. I wanted to, to hear some of your storytelling, you know, if you had a story that you could tell in season, because I know that there are certain stories you can't tell, but perhaps there's a story that you, in season that you might be able to share. Yeah, well, I want to, first of all, I want to make clear that I'm not a traditional storyteller, because I've met traditional storytellers, and they've been trained from the time they were very young. They're recognized as traditional storytellers. I feel like somehow, for me, how it's happened is just that I tell stories about my life experiences and what helped me. So that's how I do my storytelling. But oftentimes, you know, when I'm talking, it's, it's actually more contemporized. That's what I always say. And some of the stories that I have created as a result are to help teach about what's happened to us. But also, you know, what that healing process is about. So I've created stories on my own. One I had, um, I titled it the Omaha Time Traveler. And what it was about is uh, it's about a young girl who wanted to learn the Omaha language because she knew that all the elders and all the speakers were dying out. And she knew that we had no way of being immersed like we once were. I always think like, you know, when I was a kid, when I was a child here in Lincoln, even here in Lincoln, we had our own microcosm of the Omaha tribe. And that's mm -hmm. what I remember growing up at my grandparents' mm -hmm. house that you had all the Omaha families here in Lincoln that would gather together. They would be having the hand games and having feasts. And all you heard was the Omaha language, right? And for me, I thought that's how it would always be. I didn't know that things were going to shift and change. But with the language part, I always thought too that our language will always be here. 
I will have time to fully immerse. Someday I will get to immerse in the language and really learn it the way our relatives, our parents and grandparents had the opportunity. But I could see as I grew older that that wasn't happening. And so I wrote a story about this young girl who knew that she wanted the language, but she didn't have a way because everybody was speaking English, right? Whether that was in school or at home. So essentially, she made like a wish. I want to learn the language and the ancestors heard her. So they made it possible that they took her back in time. So they took her back about like 250 years or so, 300 years maybe. And so she found herself back in our lands where we're, where we're at. But she found herself in a situation where she came upon one of the old villages. And that's when she met all the old Omaha people. And they saw her and they thought she was a ghost because of the way she was dressed and the way she looked. You know, she didn't look like she wasn't dressed like they were. So the story is about how she then was immersed in the language with the old people. And she stayed there for several months until this was all she was hearing and speaking was the old language. And then she finally felt that she wanted to go back. And so the people were trying to help her. So they sent her to one of the medicine men. And so when she saw him, then he talked to her and told her, well, he said, I heard the spirit said that you had asked for help. That's why you're here. So now that you've gained that understanding, now I can send you back. I can help you. So he helped her to send her back to where she came from, to this contemporary time. So she came back into our time period so that she could teach the language and, and help the people to understand all of these things that probably we don't do anymore. That's what she brought back. And it was through the ancestors, the spirits, their help, their assistance, and through the medicine people of that time. Because, you know, in our teachings, again, we have that ability to see the future, as they say. And again, it's because those spirits, our ancestors, are able to do that. They can see the future and the past. And what in turn can happen is that that's how they're able to go and speak to somebody from the past to tell them about what's going on in the future. So this is why we have those visions, you know, on and on. You know, that's that's a story like with Big Out, Chief Big Out, mm-hmm. when he sent out all the young people to go out and fast. And when they came back with all those visions of the future, then that's what helped him to kind of like mold this process that we're still living, you know, living out his directives, told us to adapt so that we would survive and told us what was going to be happening. You know, my mom would talk about that all the time, too. This is what my grandpa said, she said. She would talk about, you know, the grandpa that raised her, how he would tell her about computers, like, you know, like what we're doing now. Like she said, mm-hmm. he told me that we were going to be speaking on these boxes and that we would see each other as we're speaking. So he told me, he said, make sure you look good. (laughs) So when I think about those things in regards to how do we bridge again that process we can do so through stories and uh, a lot of our stories that we have are based on history 
but also they're based on our current experiences. So maybe in the future, my stories might be told as in, well, that's what she was going through at that time. So this is what we're bringing forth. So that's why I always felt, you know, because I'd feel funny, you know, I'd think, I don't think of myself as a storyteller. But however, I can tell stories to help people to understand. And if I have to bring in these teachings through those stories, then that's what I can do. So for me, I feel like it's been again through my own spiritual experiences that I've been able to create stories to help people now. And that's the kind of storyteller I am, I guess you'd say. So I can share things without it being out of context, I guess. And our our ancestors, they had those storytelling abilities and they spoke in the language though. And when they spoke in the language, everything was so much different. Everything, the description to the humor, everything. And here we are now, all of us contemporary ones that aren't fluent speakers. I don't think of myself as a fluent speaker. I think of myself as a passive speaker. I can read and write the language, but I'm not a fluent speaker. So in the way that I do things, I feel like I can help people to make that next step. Like if they want to go and really immerse themselves, maybe this is what they can do. There's different ways to go about doing things. So if my stories can help that way, like the Omaha Time Traveler, then it will help inspire people to look at how did that work? How would that work for us? It's to help again in that healing process. So I have, I have other stories that I've created as well that I, that I do share from time to time. And it helps people again to understand these are the things that we once had practiced and done, but these are the things that we can do now if we so desire. But it's always about commitment again. I hope that helps. We've done huh, for for sharing that and and sharing all of your experience and like I said I, I follow you and watch your journey and we've done a few projects together and it just feels really nice to be able to sit down and have this conversation and just hear your heart you know yeah. as you speak thank you and for me the gifts of knowledge and hearing what you've provided has just been beautiful and amazing and I can't thank you enough for for joining us today and I really can't wait for this episode to be aired for other people to hear the knowledge that you've got to share. And I just want to thank you again, Wangi Day Weebdaha for for everything. I mean, for for joining us today, Renee. Oda. Thank you. Weebdaha. Yes. This has been Not Invisible, Native Peoples on the Front Lines, a House on Fire production. Our producers are Spirit Buffalo and Ashley Robinson. Our editors, Abby Franz. The song for this episode is Another Side by Wild Whispers, produced by Ben Reno, Eli Love, and Megan Lee. I'm your host, Leandra Neffin. Until next time. Weeblaha.